So I was reading recently some research from a, uh, <clears throat> a British study of religion educators in the UK. Uh, the study apparently wanted to know how religion teachers were presenting uh, things like Christianity to their audience, and they were a little concerned that there was an overly positive view of Christianity that was being presented to these young, unsuspecting students. Uh, the researchers say this, many people would argue that it's wrong to think of Christianity or any other faith in purely positive terms. Hmm. Religion can be a force for good or bad, depending on its message and the messenger. It's perfectly possible to celebrate the virtues of Christian compassion while recognizing problems with everything from creationism to some religious attitudes towards homosexuality. Yet according to our latest research, many religious education teachers in the UK are encouraging pupils to take similarly unbalanced views of religion, of their subject all the way all year round. And it's doing learners and the subject a major disservice and needs to change. Huh. Well, a little under 500 people they surveyed, only about 45% of them uh, believed in a God at all. Uh, the arrest were atheists or agnostics or otherwise. But of that group, only about 28% of them said that they slightly agreed with the statement that religious is, religion is dangerous. Um, but that still left a pretty large sample size of people who kind of had, at least what the researchers thought, was an overly rosy view of religion in general. And there was a portion of the survey where you could write in some uh, responses. And what the researchers found was that people were saying that they were giving maybe a little bit too much credit to Christianity in the way they viewed it. One respondent said this, Yes, as teachers, we teach general tolerance to all people of all religions and all religions that teach peace, love, and compassion. With the odd exception where there may be extremists who misinterpret their holy books, but that they exist within all religions and they are not that religion's true followers. Well, those kinds of responses made the researchers very nervous and thought that that should be stopped. Here's what they say. Put simply, this is bad education, no matter how well-intentioned, because it sanitizes religion. It cleanses it of negativity, destructiveness, and anything antisocial, leaving it sparkling with ideals to which humankind can aspire. All religions have loving and hateful expressions. In history, Christianity has motivated great acts of human kindness, but has also been used to justify violence. Religion is no more good than bad, no more antisocial than pro-social. Young people need to be encouraged to develop a mature view which is able to encompass and reflect the best and worst of religious expression and all the shades in between. Now, I assure you, I really don't have a lot of strong opinions about the British educational system, but I do think it demonstrates something interesting about our culture in that we have moved, in what I heard one uh, preacher years, uh, a couple of months ago say, uh, into what we call a post-Christendom society, where the basic sort of tenets of Christianity are not only less known to people, but far less tolerated, and in many ways more hostily dealt with. I recently listened to a TED talk uh, by a young woman who had been involved in the Sun Young Moon cult in the 1970s, or what we used to call the Moonies back in the day, kids. Um, well, she now does brain studies uh, on the people who are, who in her opinion, are blindly religiously motivated uh, and weak-minded. 
And she suggests throughout the whole thing that religious fundamentalism is what she calls, and she uses the phrase, a virus of the mind, borrowing from pop atheist uh, Richard Dawkins. And she talks about the attributes of the psychologically vulnerable as those who are idealistic and naive. Uh, They're people who are looking for easy answers in life and get sucked in. She now runs an organization devoted to to deprogramming people who have been caught up in these religious versions of religious extremism. And I got to be honest with you, when I start to hear talk like that, it makes me at least a little bit nervous because I realize that the phrase religious extremism uh, is a bit of a moving target. And you never know when suddenly that's going to land on something that we actually hold as basic to Christian doctrine. But I'm also reminded, on the other hand, that Jesus never promised his followers that the world was going to applaud for them as they marched through life. But I figured since we're asking the question this year of what it would have been that was compelling to a culture in Jesus' day that honestly was every bit as secular and polytheistic as ours, to leave that worldview and follow what Jesus was saying... (laughs) that I realized that that last verse, one of those last verses that Kurt just read in verse 33, sounds awfully like a statement that might be interpreted as religious extremism. That's what he says. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Huh. So here's my question. Is Jesus a cult leader? Um, His words in chapter 14, they feel exclusionary. Uh, They feel polarizing. And to our modern ears, it sounds like this is a a short step towards some weirdo tyranny that somebody's exercising over people. But Jesus is basically saying, if you are going to be my disciple, if you're going to be a follower of me, then it's going to ask of you an exclusive and exacting loyalty. So my question is, and what separates Jesus from any other weirdo, hyper-fundamentalist that we might encounter in our modern day, right? And I simply want to wrap this around the idea of radical discipleship and three things to notice about it. Jesus' radical discipleship is necessary. It is rooted in a larger story. And finally, it is born of grace. Okay, so first of all, radical discipleship that Jesus is presenting here is necessary. And I realize that when people get to verse 26, it really gives them fits the first time they read it because Jesus is telling me to hate my parents. What? What does that have to do with anything? Maybe Jesus here is preying upon unsuspecting young people, you know, who live in perpetual conflict with their parents, you know, and are, you know, sucking them into devotion to him. Do we have the seeds of dangerous religious extremism here? Well, I don't think so. I think it helps to explain that when Jesus says to hate your parents, he's not suggesting that you openly despise or or be hostile towards them. Actually, you can interpret the word hate in, in a number of different ways. Of course, it can be meant to be used actively, like I hate something. But the word hate can also be used, uh, we might say, comparatively. That is, compared to how much devotion and love I have for this thing, what I have for these people is like hate. Compared to, I think that's the way Jesus is using it here. But he's, but he's also making what I think is a countercultural and a foundational point about his kingdom that he's bringing. And it's simply this. The nature of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing, it really doesn't allow for, for partial participation. Uh, imagine for a moment that you're counseling uh, a young, newly married uh, woman who says this to you. You know, I'd kind of like to have a baby. 
And so I was thinking of getting kind of pregnant. You would look at them and take them by the hand if you have children yourself, and you would say, oh, sweetie, (laughs) don't you understand that, like, you can't be kind of pregnant. There's no such thing as kind of raising children. You can't kind of purchase a home for yourself. Why? Because those are such all-encompassing social and biological realities that it demands total involvement. Not because somebody's being mean, but because it's the nature of what you've gotten into. It demands it. And so Jesus, I don't think, is being threatening when he's talking this way. He's simply saying, you've got to understand the kind of, of kingdom that I'm bringing here. And so there's a sense in which he pushes us to see that his kingdom is binary. You are either with me or you are against me, he will say. And I realize that that kind of language we've already established makes modern people sort of nervous on one hand. But I've also found that there's kind of a religious, uh, almost evangelical version uh, that comes in kind of a different form. For the last 50 years or so, Christians have implied in some of the ways in which they've taught about the Christian life that there are, for lack of a better phrase, uh, levels in Christianity. Uh, What we might call tiers that you ascend up into. You know, some Christians are like super sold out to the Lord, while others remain less mature. Uh, less devoted, or, or they use the word carnal, fleshly, uh, in, in their state. You know, back in the day, there used to be a lot of conversation about the so-called carnal Christian. This is a person who had, had made some kind of decision, perhaps in their youth, to follow Jesus. But at present, you know, they're just kind of on their own path. And maybe they'll go return to it sometime later on in life. But if, you know, God forbid, something happens to me between now and then, I've got the assurance of escorting into the pearly gates if something like that happens. But on the other hand, there's the really super devoted, the spirit-filled Christians who who have given up any allegiance to themselves and and have made Jesus the Lord of their life. One of the more dramatic features of, of this sort of way of thinking was presented to me when I was in high school through a series of drawings. This person drew basically two circles to represent these two kinds of people. On the one hand, you saw that there was a group, there was a circle with the person who did not make Jesus Lord. And and the issues of their life were kind of all scrambled up. These are things like your emotional life, your, 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 your choices that you make in life, your home life. And you could tell they were less devoted because the, the dots of their life were all messed up. But on the other hand, you had the the spirit-filled individual who had put Jesus on the throne of their life, and all their dots were very nice and neat and tidily in a row. Well, you know, I've actually grown to actually have problems with both of those presentations. Uh, First of all, because I just can't find anywhere in the Bible, like our passage we just said, that you can have Jesus be a part of your life, but not have him as Lord. But on the other hand, I also don't see that whenever Jesus enters the life that you get all your stuff all neat and nice and tidy and get your dots in a row. (laughs) Actually, quite the opposite. When Jesus sort of comes into the life, it's a major disruptive force, especially early on. But see, Luke 14 gives us some clarity here by explaining that I just don't think Jesus knows anything like a carnal Christian. In his mind, you can't water him down or have him partially. We say that we trusted Jesus as our Savior. I just haven't made him the Lord of my life yet. But for Jesus, there's no such thing if you're going to take him at his word here. In other words, Jesus is saying, I can never be a means to an end. 
Rather, I have to be the end to which all the other things in your life are means. I don't function as a spoke on the wheel of your life. I'm either the hub or I'm not a part of you at all. So Jesus is saying, I am here to descend into the core motivational centers of your life to exercise area uh, uh, influence over every area of your life or what the Bible calls your heart. What I think this means is that Jesus is saying that if I'm, gonna, if I'm going to call myself his follower, i got to be careful about the way that I talk about things. <laughs> it's not appropriate to say, I mean, look, I mean, I'm a Christian and everything, but, um, you know, people can take this stuff too far. Or, I mean, I figure that since we have kids now, I mean, we ought to be back in church. I don't want them to grow up to be jerks or whatever. Might as well join the church. Or, come on, it's hunting camp. Yeah, we drink too much every now and then. We don't talk about sex in inappropriate ways, but hey, I'm still a Christian. Jesus is saying we can't talk that way. He's saying, be careful lest you're being presumptuous. My lordship extends into every area of your life, whether it's your hunting camp, whether it's your, your, your wine night, where we kind of laugh a little bit about how we drink too much, or whether it's the boardroom where we make decisions on the basis of greed all the time, or whether it's in our living rooms and our dens where we, where we speak so uncharitably to our spouse and to our children. So Jesus is saying, every inch is mine because the kingdom I'm bringing is, demands radical discipleship. Secondly, though, radical discipleship, though, we see is rooted in a larger story, okay? Because that last point, frankly, is it's, it's some strong medicine. But we've got to get it in, in, in context, understand how I still would say that this is deeply compelling for Jesus' followers. How can I say that? Well, it means we've got to get a, a view of the big picture of the Bible. And I keep coming back to this because I realize how easy it is to lose the Bible's big picture. And you see it most vividly in the parable of the wedding banquet. It seems clear that Jesus is aimed there at the religious people of his day. He's throwing this big party and the religious people who all have the invitation, they keep saying no. They're making these terrible excuses. Why? Well, they've got problems with their possessions. You know, they've got problems with plans that they've already made. There's just so much business to be done with the people in my life. But either way, in verse 24, Jesus vows that none of those men get invited to experience the delight of the feast. And then in verse 26, he starts talking about hating his parents and even their own life. You'd be okay to ask, like, who would sign up for something like that? But don't you see what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying that these Jews who were given centuries of exposure to the grace of God through the prophets and the visions... But now, when he shows up in power, we don't like the form that he's come in. It's totally changed, I think, how we see the parable. And I, I found a wonderful illustration uh, by theologian N.T. Wright on this, where he says, basically, you know, we're confused by Jesus' teaching. Because on the one hand, we tend to read it as if Jesus is the world's worst politician, okay? Making the worst campaign speech ever, where he basically says, look, elect me as the Lord of your life, and I'll give you higher taxes and lower wages uh, and probably death for you all. That's kind of what he says, isn't it? You know, he says, like, if you want to be one of my followers, you, you have to hate your family and give up your possessions. Oh, and probably die. I mean, who would sign up for that? But Wright goes, but imagine if you take Jesus away from being a politician 
And rather, imagine that there is a, um, an explorer who's leading an expedition to bring life-giving medicine to a village that's on the other side of a very dangerous and narrow mountain pass. And at one point during the journey, he looks across and says, look, if you guys want to come any further, you probably just want to go ahead and lay your packs down here. And I'm going to help you as we go through that pass anyway. And frankly, the route is dangerous and some of you are not going to make it. But here's the deal. There is nothing more important than that we get this medicine to those villagers. Now look, you may not like the way that sounds either, but at least you can understand why Jesus was putting it this way. Because he's saying that the nature of the mission is the only way to explain the demands of the mission. If Jesus is coming casually to appeal to people's sensibilities so that I can be happier and well-filled in life, then yeah, you'd walk away from this. But if Jesus is saying, I'm here to fix what is deeply wrong with the world and you. And frankly, you who are wrapped up in the same ailment from which the world suffers, both as its victims, yes, but also as its agents. This is radical surgery that's being done. It's a dramatic mission to bring fundamental life-altering tectonic changes in the way people look at the world. And so therefore it demands only the complete and utter radical devotion to what Jesus is doing. So it's rooted in a larger story. It's necessary. And thirdly and finally, radical discipleship that Jesus is talking about is born of grace. Look at verse 13 and 14. Jesus says, look, when you start to celebrate your life at various times with a banquet or a dinner, don't focus on rich and influential people. But instead... Look towards the broken people. Hmm. Now, why would Jesus do that? Well, actually, ask the opposite question. (laughs) Why would someone only invite the rich and influential? I mean, Jesus has already exposed the guests, you know, at the party he was attending as loving the seats of privilege. But Jesus is saying, look, guys, that is a dead end. (laughs) Because if that's all you're after is for their approval, you got nowhere to go which is a profound point because Jesus is saying the kingdom that I'm bringing is actually going to free you from the tyranny of longing for privilege and status. Live for those things, he's saying, and it's going to end up cursing you in the end. I mentioned this uh, briefly last fall, but C.S. Lewis has an essay in his collection of essays called The Weight of Glory uh, called The Inner Ring. It's an address delivered to a bunch of young boys upon their graduation from a boys' school in uh, England. And as he's talking to them, he talks about the fact that there seems to be this urge that is, that is a huge fountainhead of human motivation to be in. <laughs> that there's some group, there's some uh, collection of people who are, who are influential or, or important or cool. That we just, we just long to be accepted in the midst of it. We want to know that we're a part of it. And that there are even times when we suddenly discover that we have been brought in it. And you can tell because someone uses the word we. You know what? We need to get you in on this committee because it seems like we're the only ones who know what's going on in this place. And you try to blush. You try to keep from blushing because you're thinking to yourself, oh, <laughs> yeah, we do know, don't we? Because you realize suddenly I've been ushered in. I'm on the inside. 
Lewis says this, I believe that in all men's lives at certain periods and in many men's lives at all periods between infancy and extreme old age, that one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside a local ring and the terror of being left on the outside. And Lewis sort of goes in this address, but he challenges these young boys with this question. Has there ever been anything that you've done by way of escorting yourself into some cool, influential group that you can look back on and be happy with what you did. He says this, in the whole of your life as you now remember it, has the desire to be on the right side of that invisible line ever prompted you to any act or word on which in the cold, small hours of a wakeful night you can look at with any satisfaction? Instead, Jesus is saying, my kingdom is marked by people who actually have found a way not to care about their social status at all. Have you noticed how much the gospel of Luke is just preoccupied by the lowest rungs of society? Luke keeps on telling these stories about the poor, about the crippled, about the disenfranchised, about the socially oppressed, about Children and women, quite frankly, who are lower rungs of society, the lame and the helpless. Jesus is saying, look, when you celebrate your faith, celebrate with them. Why? Well, I don't think it's because Jesus is saying there's something inherently meritorious about being poor, as if there's absolute merit in poverty. Actually, sometimes poverty is the result of a foolishly led life. But here's the question. When Jesus comes to dwell among men, and he brings a message that goes like this, hey, There is nothing you can do to save yourself. No amount of moral effort will pull you up out of your present spiritual condition. And you are so sin sick that only a salvation of complete grace is ever going to help you. Which group of people are going to receive that message and respond to it positively? Well, I can tell you it's not going to be the self-sufficient It's not going to be the self-satisfied. It won't be the proud and powerfully insecure who are still pining to be accepted by this group or the other. Instead, that message, it tends to resonate with a lower class. Why? Because they have a physical analogy for the spiritual truth. That's why it was poor people that were drawn to Jesus so much because they were like, yeah, I get that. (laughs) I know what it means to be empty. And so Jesus is saying here, when you have a kingdom banquet that you're throwing, Bring the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Why? Because you get them, right? You've connected with them. Because you were stricken with the same dread when you found out God's commandments for your life. Right? You connect. Brene Brown, sociologist, says that we connect with someone when we see the world through their eyes. How well connected are you to the people around you? Because Jesus is saying, I came to bring a message so transformational. We suddenly looked at a poor person and was like, ooh, ooh, I get you. Man, you've made some dumb choices. I don't want to talk about my dumb choices. Man, every time somebody gives you something, you waste it and mess it up. Oh, that sounds familiar to me. See what Jesus is laying out before us. I've got a great illustration for this. It actually comes from the Bible, believe it or not. It's not, something, it's not, it's not a TED Talk again, right? And it comes actually from this, the life of King David. 
King David has this moment where he, um, in his, minister, or in his uh, um, uh, reign of, uh, of kingship, where he gets the Ark of the Covenant back from where it was into Jerusalem. Okay? And they hold this giant party and celebrate in the streets for the Ark of the Covenant being back among their city. And of course, David decides he's going to go and dance. Well, in the midst of his dancing, the text says that he disrobes in the sight of his servants' slave girls. Okay? Now look, um, your servants are a little bit lower than you, but the slaves of your servants are lower than that, and the girls, uh, you know, slaves of your servants, are as low as you can get. And there is David disrobing. Now, don't read that passage to say that, Jesus, that, that David is dancing naked in front of these people. That's not what the text says. By disrobing, remember, he's the king. It means that he took off anything that would have sort of communicated to other people that he was the king. He had, he had no more distinguishing features on himself. Well, the person who got to watch it all go down was his wife, Michael, the daughter of Saul, you know, raised in aristocracy. And she looks down, and when he finally comes in that night, he's like, oh, ho, ho, how the king has distinguished himself today, dancing and disrobing in front of the slave girls of your servants like any common person would. David looks into the eyes of his condescending wife and he says, you know what? It was because the Lord who chose me that I had to dance. But you know these slave girls that you, thought of, that you talk about? They will actually hold me in honor. You want to know why? Because I don't need their approval. And they don't need mine. The truth is, we can celebrate wholeheartedly together with no boundaries with no stupid distinctions, no stuffiness, just genuineness. C.S. Lewis said, true humility is not thinking little of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. Christians gravitated towards the poor, towards the marginalized. Why? Because we found out that Jesus really loves those people. And there's a weird reversal, I think, when you sort of take this whole message as a whole. Because if you're worried this morning... and you, and this is natural. If you look at Jesus' qualifications for radical discipleship, and you worry a little bit that you're not quite worthy of that, what's so crazy is you're actually closer to meeting the requirements to be an object of his love. It's upside down. Because in the end, you can let go of that crown. Whatever that thing is that you think right now is distinguishing you, that's going to bring you into that final group that makes me in. Because in the face of the kingdom Jesus is bringing, it just seems unnecessary, doesn't it? Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, we need you to help us see more clearly. Help us see who we are from your eyes. Help us connect to you in that regard. And we realize that for the first experience of that, it may not be pleasant because you're asking for everything. So we pray, Father, that we can, during this song, look and say that we have, we have given all. We've taken up our cross. We've left everything, and we long to see you. Faith to sight, prayer to praise. Father, draw us to yourself this morning, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.